Y'all, did you hear that the canine conservationist team is heading to Kenya? We're donating our time to support the dog handler teams at Action for Cheetahs in Kenya and need your help. We're hosting a conservation dog trivia night to fundraise for this trip on March 3rd at 7 o'clock Eastern time, which is 5 o'clock Mountain. We've got some exciting guests and topics ranging from big cat conservation to the history of working dogs. And we're asking for a $25 donation per person with teams of up to six. You can join us at the link in the show notes. While Action for Cheetahs has two highly trained detection dogs, they're in the process of training a new round of handlers. And we are offering six weeks each of mentoring, problem solving, and training advice. And all three of us are super excited. That said, Action for Cheetahs is operating on a really tight budget and cannot pay enough to even cover cover the costs of our student loans during our travel for all three handlers, myself included. You can support us by donating directly on the website or by joining our trivia night on Thursday, March 3rd at 5 o'clock Eastern. See you there. Welcome to the Canine Conservationist Podcast, where we're positively obsessed with conservation detection dogs. Join us every week to discuss ecology, odor dynamics, dog behavior, and everything in between. I'm your host, Kayla Fratt, and I run Canine Conservationists, where I train dogs to detect data for researchers, agencies, and NGOs. I'm super excited to share today's interview with you, but first we're going to talk about our weekly suggestion. This week, let's remember to take the plunge, apply to buy that puppy, launch that business, or sign up for that new class. Hey everyone, I just wanted to let you know that we had some audio issues with this episode. Both Kyoko and Charles had to re-record some of their answers. So if the audio sounds off or things sound a little bit awkward, that is why it's still a really great interview and bear with us. Thanks for understanding. Today I'm joined by our conservation correspondent, Dr. Charles Van Rees. Hello. Um, To interview Kyoko Johnson of Conservation Dogs of Hawaii. Hi. So, um, as a quick intro for Kyoko, she's been training dogs and their people in Hawaii since 2008. Her love of dogs came from volunteering for various dog rescue organizations and shelters on the island. And since beginning her dog training career, she's earned various professional training and instructor certifications, including through the CCPDT, the KPA, and the NACSW. Um, And we will have all of those acronyms in our show notes if you're not familiar with what they are. Kyoko began her career as an ecological scent detection dog trainer and handler in 2012 through an Oahu Wind Farms Habitat Conservation Programs, which utilized canines to locate endangered seabird and bat fatalities to measure the environmental impact. She went on to train and handle dogs for various conservation projects, including a study at Hanalei National Wildlife Refuge, which measured the efficacy of using conservation detection dogs to lower avian botulism-related mortality in Kaloa, Maoli. And I'm so sorry, I'm the one here who should not be pronouncing Hawaiian words, <laughs> um, which is an endangered Hawaiian duck, and a project that used, utilized the dogs to monitor eradication efforts of invasive yellow crazy ants, which is a species that caused great harm to seabirds at Johnson Atoll National Wildlife Refuge. Kyoko continues to operate her private business, Country Canine LLC, in addition to serving as the president and lead canine trainer of Conservation Dogs of Hawaii. So thank you so much for joining us. Um, Charles, why don't you kick us off with our first couple of questions? My my first question, Kyoko, first of all, welcome and aloha and, and thanks so thank much you. for joining aloha. us. It's, it's- Great to have you on the show. And I, I've as soon as I heard this was happening, I, I was really interested in being involved. 
I've, I've, I'm especially interested, of course, in your work going on at, at Hanalei National Wildlife Refuge, which is a place very dear to my heart. And I guess I wanted to start off sort of just, just by asking, what, what are you guys up to in Hanalei and elsewhere? What are sort of the, the current comings and goings of Conservation Dogs Hawaii? Sure. Uh, so I just got back from Hanalei, actually, working with a few of the dog handlers there. Um, I, as you know, we had conducted a study there several years ago um, to measure the efficacy of the detection dogs. And so the canine program that I helped set up this past year was based on the study, like the lessons mm-hmm. learned and um, all that stuff. So um, right now they have three dog handler teams that um, are certified at what we call level one, where they're searching for targets that are you know, um, physically accessible to the dogs on the dikes and in the ditches and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And we, they're conducting surveys right now, um, doing quite well. Um, and they're also training for level two, which uh, will involve the dogs, you know, alerting from a distance um, at targets that are not accessible to them that are located inside the tarot units. Oh, right. So, yeah. So the uh, refuge is kind of a unique environment that it's, uh, a mix of managed wetland units as well as farmed taro or kalo units. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we, they don't want the dogs tromping all over the plants and damaging the crops. So, you know, we circumnavigate them and um, eventually we'll have the dogs go into, yeah, the, the taro to pinpoint the targets. And those targets, oh, cool. those are... Uh, bird corpses or bird corpses specifically with botulism or what's the um so um the the general goal is to curb or prevent you know the outbreak of avian botulism but we're having the dogs um, trained and finding all carcasses of water birds um just because they you know any carcass whether they have botulism or not can you know um trigger an outbreak being a protein source yeah right Wow. And I imagine it's that's for all these listed species, any carcass might be of interest, right? If people are doing studies on mortality rates and causes of mortality and things like that, if you can if you can get more uh <laughs> more bodies as it were for that, that sounds like that would be informative even if you weren't directly preventing the outbreaks. Um right, I know that at exactly. least in my work with them, that's a big problem is you just don't know where anything is in these wetlands, right? So mm-hmm. that's a good place for dog noses. Yeah, so that's what we're doing in Hanalei, and um, as far far as our other projects, I'll just give you a quick overview. Um, You know, one of our main programs is the Invasive Plant Program with um, Devilweed, or Cromolina odorata. Yeah, and so we have five operational dog handler teams conducting surveys. Um, We started that a couple of years ago, and it's going really well. Um, It was definitely a learning process. I can talk to you more about it later. but yeah, so they're out conducting surveys. Um, we just um, hosted a big plant pulling event recently uh, that didn't involve the dogs, but the, our dog teams found some crazy infestation sites. So we recruited a bunch of Marines and, you know, conservation people to pull like up <laughs> 4,000 plus plants. <laughs> so oh my that was gosh. crazy. Yeah. Um, and then uh, our rodent mongoose detection is on hold. Um, our goal is to do biosecurity, like screening boats that go out to the remote atolls and wildlife oh. refuges. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's a big goal. But right now we're doing more behind the scenes work, like working on presentations uh, for potential partners and things like that. Yeah. 
And then, wow. uh, yeah, the seabird work is um, really exciting. We just started that this year, and we hope to do a lot more of it next year. So that's kind of we're training for it, but not actively in the field because it's not the right season right now. Mm-hmm. Plenty of irons in the fire then, gosh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like you've got, got tons of free time, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, and that actually leads us into my next question really nicely. So you mentioned you've got kind of level one and level two for the dog accreditations or certifications. Um And I know one of the things that's really unique about the program you're running is that you do work with some volunteers. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of how you find those volunteers, how you screen and train them? I know that's something that it just seems like a massive logistical endeavor. And I I know I've heard um, other conservation dog handlers being very skittish about kind of the concept of volunteers in this line of work. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. I understand their concerns. Um, I can address some of those later. Um, would you like to hear about Hanalei or about the devil weed program or a little of both? I guess a little bit of both. How different are they? So the Hanalei program is, they're not actually our volunteers. They're U S fish and wildlife uh, volunteers for the refuge itself. So I'm being hired or our organization was hired to do the training and development of that program. Um, the fact that they're volunteers is, you know, or not paid, I should say, is, um, you know, kind of not important, I don't think, because it's more about finding the right people and the right dogs that work for that application and um, the people who have the background with the water birds. Like all volunteers at Hanalei are required to have at least you know, several months of experience doing visual botulism surveys before they can, you know, participate in the canine program, in addition to having the criteria to meet the canine handler um, team criteria. Um, so, yeah, so they, uh, the volunteers uh, at Hanalei are required to have experience with the water birds, like knowing how to read their behaviors, Um, how to, you know, avoid, you know, um, causing any disturbance as much as possible, knowing what the nesting season is and, you know, what behaviors they display, that kind of thing. Um, And then in addition to that, um, we have a checklist of, um, you know, qualities that we're looking for in the dogs and handlers. And unlike, you know, maybe like an off-leash vast landscape survey for scat or something like that, you may not want to use a dog at the refuge who is, um, you know, extremely, um, not that you don't want them to be high drive, but you don't want them, you know, running around like crazy and disturbing the wildlife. So, you know, we're looking for dogs that are a little bit mellower, who, who still have the drive to work and do what we need them to do and who are not going to be at all um, bothered by the tons of birds that are all over the refuge. Um, And then as far as the uh, devil weed program, it's actually probably, I would say, the opposite. Um, You know, it's all off-leash work. You know, we're not working around sensitive wildlife. um, So we're looking for dogs that have a pretty high level of drive. And in fact, you know, I didn't expect the devil weed project to um, require that so much, but we learned from working with this particular plant in these environments that it really does require that much drive because I think Kayla, you've worked with um, plant detection as well. And you know, you've seen that it's not always that easy to pinpoint like it is a bird carcass or something like that. So with the variable, you know, weather conditions and stuff like that, you know, the obstacles, the bushes and things that they have to get around, it does, you know, require that kind of drive in the dog. 
So we seek out um, not only dogs like that, but handlers who are already you know, active outdoors and it's not like something that they have to train towards. Um, yeah, because I have had, you know, potential dog handlers get really mad at me because um, they, you know, did try to do a survey and they're like, that almost killed me, you know, it's, even though it's, it wasn't that challenging. So, um, yeah, we definitely look for people who are physically fit and already are outdoors doing that type of thing with their dog. Uh, not detection, but, you know, um, hiking and rough terrain and stuff like that. Yeah, thanks so much for that answer, Kyoko. So it sounds like you're looking for definitely making sure that you've got kind of the right dog for the job. And I'd love to dig into that a little bit later if we've got time, um, you know, as far as the the difficulties of working with plants and kind of finding the dog who's got the right drive level. And then also looking at making sure the humans have the right fitness. What are some of the other things that you're looking for as you're screening volunteers for these for these positions? Sure. So for the Devil Weed program, we... Um, it's required that all dog handlers have at least a year or more of scent detection training experience, um, you know, mm-hmm. including odor and printing, because we're a small organization. We don't have a huge uh, amount of funding and we don't have a facility. So we're not able to, you know, we don't have the resources to train completely green teams. Um, so we do require that previous experience, whether it's, you know, search and rescue or nose work classes or, you know, bomb detection or whatever it is. Um, So just to give you a little background on why the devil weed work requires a high drive dog, uh, we found that the wild plants are sometimes really hard for the dog to pinpoint, especially the smaller plants, uh, because the pooling odor in the environment is stronger than the source odor. Um, Sometimes a dog will catch odor and then go right to a nearby plant and it's easy, but oftentimes the dog has to keep searching and searching after it catches odor for, you know, 10 plus minutes to locate a tiny plant and they can't give up until they... Um, find the plant. So that's um, not easy. And then there's situations, um, particularly on windy days, when the dog catches odor from as far as 80 meters away. But in order to get to the plant, the dog has to navigate around, you know, super thick vegetation and other obstacles or go down steep slopes and deal with wind direction switches. Um, so, yeah, the teaching the dog the odor is easy, but the actual field work for devil weed turned out to be more challenging, especially now that these dogs are really sensitive to the odor and they're finding tiny plants and plants that are really far away. And some things that we don't require, you know, ahead of time is more just, you know, a really good understanding of environmental conditions and how they affect, um, you know, odor and stuff like that. I mean, they need to have the basics um, as far as whatever their background was, but working in a, you know, large outdoor environment is, is quite different from, you know, maybe we're doing bomb detection indoors or Mm -hmm. nose work Mm -hmm. or something like that. So Mm -hmm. that's something that I work on with the handlers, teach them, you know, I shadow them in the field uh, a lot before they're operational, Um, you know, learning Mm -hmm. about GPS devices and data submission and record keeping, things like that, that they might not be used to. We go over that kind of stuff, um, which is a little bit easier than teaching them about, you know, just how to be outdoors and how to um, work with your dog and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That's Um, a lot of useful skills. I mean, that that (laughs) sounds like, you know what I mean? Like they're coming out of that with a lot. I hope so. My, my goal is to not just have them be, you know, dog handlers for this particular program, but to groom them so that they can do additional jobs in the future. Um, mm-hmm. Because as you know, our organization's goal is to spread 
the use of, you know, effective use of conservation dogs in the Hawaiian nice. Islands and maybe even beyond. So wow. I'd love to have more people trained up to do this kind of work. Um, it's hard to import people from the mainland or elsewhere. <laughs> We're so isolated. Um, yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it's hard to get here. You can't bring your dogs here that easily. So, yeah, I think to build local capacity is very important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And it reminds me, I know there's been some some white papers put out by Working Dogs for Conservation and others, especially on international projects that often um, like trying to get a conservation dog program up and running in a lot of other countries is cost prohibitive if you're importing the handlers. But if you're able to kind of get the teams up and running on the ground um, locally, that can make these pro programs just that much more feasible. Wow. That's really smart. And that I like the, that, that for me, at least coming from the conservation field, especially on the international side of it, you know, there's such an emphasis in the last decade of changing conservation to be more local, to be more involved with the context around which this conservation is happening for a number of reasons. Right. But, you know, ethically speaking, of course, it makes so much more sense to just involve local people because you're empowering the communities, you're you're cutting away at this sort of conservation imperialism that happens so often. So mm -hmm. I love that idea. And I, and I think it's absolutely fantastic. You guys are doing it. So, I mean, I, I have little to say other than like kudos and wow, that's amazing. <laughs> and thank you for doing that. <laughs> yeah. One other thing um, that I found with using or training um, volunteer dog handler teams from the community is that it's um, it's great for PR and for just spreading the word about the mm. conservation causes because mm -hmm. the people are more interested in hearing about, you know, community members doing this rather than, oh, just some professionals out there that they can't relate mm -hmm. to. Right, um, of so course. that's been a good thing as well. Although there are, of course, negative perceptions of volunteer dog handler teams as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If you want to talk about that um, a little bit, I mean, one of the other things that I'm thinking about, and then I will let you get to some of the perceptions of volunteers is, I know I talk to a lot of people who want to try this field, who want to experiment or learn about conservation dog work and try it out, but maybe aren't willing to do or aren't able um, for whatever reason to do it kind of full time or do it, you know, the way I'm doing it where I live in a van and I drive from field site to field site and I don't have... I don't have property. I don't even have a storage unit. I have no, I've like my mailing address is a disaster. And most people don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of people aren't in a position to do that. So I really love that it gives people this ability to try out this field at a really high professional level. It seems like you're offering a ton of mentorship, a ton of oversight. Right. Um, and again, it makes it much more accessible to local people rather than just these kind of elite vagabonds who move around and charge, you know, we charge through the nose um, when we have to come to you and do this full time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, what are some of the, the negative perceptions or kind of things that you'd like to address as far as volunteer work? Sure. Yeah. I think um, one of them is that, you know, I think you touched on that, but the fact that volunteers are, you know, low skill level and it, it lowers the um, image of dog handlers and dog trainers in this field. Um, and I think that can happen with, you know, hobbyist type um, people who just wing it and try it on their own. Um, and they, they maybe have not been mentored by a professional, but, you know, our goal is to train people professionally and to have them meet a certain standard um, and pass certifications or, you know, to certain criteria before they become operational um, so that they can meet the goals that we have. 
Um, so yeah, I think that you know the level of skill really just depends on whether the volunteer is trained by a professional or not. And it's, I think the same is true with paid handlers as well. You know, because I've worked with paid handlers who don't necessarily have the best attitude, and they just do the minimum to get paid, um, and they're not mm -hmm. eager to learn, and they they don't necessarily meet the criteria either. So yeah, I think. Um, whether they're paid or not, I think it's um, not so much the issue as, yeah, the, the mentorship they receive and the criteria that they're asked to meet. Yeah, and then the other yeah. um, negative perception is um, money-related. Money I think there's the perception that, you know, if there's free volunteer dog handlers out there, then the professionals or the, you know, uh, the skilled people are not going to get paid. Like they're oh, taking mm -hmm. the money away from, you know, uh, and I think that's true with other fields as well. But I feel like mm -hmm. in conservation, I mean, it's so much supported by volunteers. You know, at Hanalei, yeah. where you know I lived for several months, I mean, there are tons of interns, there are tons of volunteers supporting the refuge, and you know, the staff was almost like a small part of it. And everybody worked mm -hmm. just as hard, and they were in it for the cause. So. I feel like, you know, maybe they don't have volunteers in, you know, police dog work or, you know, TSA work or something like that. But for there to be volunteers in the conservation field seems like a natural extension um, mm -hmm. just because mm -hmm. that field itself is like that. <laughs> a wash yeah. in volunteers. Well, <laughs> yeah. Well, in my experience on the volunteer end of things, I used to volunteer at a raptor rehab center in Missoula and I've volunteered at a couple different animal shelters. And... In both cases, I think I was mostly filling in a gap that was needed that they didn't have the budget for otherwise. Like at the mm -hmm. the Raptor Rehab Center I used to work uh, volunteer at, the only paid staff member was the the CEO who lived on site and took care of the birds 24-7. Um, and they didn't have, you know, they had zero budget for anything else. And especially, you know, circling back to Hawaii being so remote, it makes a ton of sense to have people on the ground and I, I guess I'm not hundred percent sure, but it seems like the work that you're doing wouldn't necessarily, it's not like you could replace three or four volunteers with one full-time person and pay them, even if you had the budget to do that, right. like logistically exactly. speaking. Yeah. So yeah, I agree with that. And um, I also feel like that, you know, because we don't have many qualified um, skilled handlers here at the moment, um, other than a few handlers who work for the wind farm, um, maybe, or for TSA. Um, it is important to, you know, start out, well, it helps to start out with volunteers, and then eventually we can pay them, um, you know, because there'll be more jobs eventually after, you know, we prove ourselves a little bit with the work mm -hmm. that we're doing. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I feel like, you know, we're, we're developing the field, um, including for paid jobs as well. Yeah, yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And I know when I was even first starting out in freelance writing, the way I got a couple of my first clients was that I offered to write two or three blog posts for free. And sometimes I even emailed them with a blog post I'd already written mm -hmm. and said, hey, you can post this for free. I'll write a couple more for you. And eventually we can talk about you paying me. And so even outside, you know, and that's in a very for-profit oriented part of the world, but it's not unusual to use that as a strategy to prove your worth and get your foot in mm -hmm. the door. And certainly for an entire field, right? I mean, nobody knows about conservation dogs, period. 
nobody knows that's about what we're trying it, to you know? fix yeah no, i know i know yeah. that's, that's why it's so great that we're here and it's so great what kyoko's doing but like to be frank right it's 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 as far as most conservation biologists that i ever run into uh and most of my colleagues go you know people have either never heard of it or think it's really neat but it doesn't apply to them uh or they have no idea whether it's a proven thing to begin with and so i think I think Kyoko is absolutely right that what you are doing is gradually establishing the demand for it, right? Scientifically, uh, and mm-hmm. the scientific community is a very different one, as Kayla recognized, than than a for profit community. And so, th- there's a different sort of culture that you're grappling with in doing that. But I think that the work that the Conservation Dogs of IE is doing is is exactly what needs to be happening. Those sort of really high visibility sort of cases, uh, and and you know Hawaii is a major a lot of conservationists are looking at Hawaii, right? It's, it's, it's up on a stage in a lot of sense. It's the, it's the endangered species capital of the United States. And so I think it's a, yeah, these are very high visibility issues, high visibility cases that if people can see this relevance, I think that's going to build momentum a lot faster in the scientific community. Yeah. And that actually pivots us really nicely, Charles. Once again, well done everyone with the pivots. (laughs) Um, Let's talk a little bit about why Hawaii is so important and interesting ecologically and some of the threats that Hawaii is facing, you know, so we can talk as our conservation correspondent. Tell us a little bit about it. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I mean, Kyoko has been installed in this for longer than I have, so I, I will readily defer to her on any, any other, anything she has. And certainly if she has things to add, please don't hesitate to butt in, I guess to, to be very, very quick and dirty about it uh hawaii is so ecologically interesting because of its geographic location really i mean it is in the middle of absolute nowhere to to be very blunt about it right we have uh it's the most isolated archipelago in the world in the absolute middle of the pacific ocean and one of the first things that people learn in ecology and evolution is this is well, yeah, one of the major principles is this, this idea of island biogeography, with, which without being too fancy and cut technical about it, is essentially saying, right, if, if living organisms can't get someplace or if it's harder to get to that place because it's some form of island, maybe it's an island of forest in the middle of a giant plain or an island of water in the middle of a very dry area, it's a type of habitat that is not surrounded by itself, right, and it's somewhat isolated, that makes it harder to get there, which means that fewer things get there. And then, you know, what we'd consider, I don't know, sort of a normal continental ecosystem does not really happen. And oftentimes, really weird stuff happens on islands and weird, especially weird stuff happened on Hawaii, because a lot of the species that we expect to be filling the those ecological niches, right, or those specific functions in ecosystem are not there. So then weird stuff happens and you get these very strange systems. So in Hawaii, uh, before the Polynesians arrived, right, all of the large land animals were huge ducks primarily that did all sorts of weird stuff. And they were, they were the major grazers and herbivores and whatever else. Uh, and that's really weird. Oh, weird. Uh, and the, <laughs> so yeah. weird. And there were, there were no amphibians. There were no reptiles. Uh, there were no ants. The only land, quote unquote, land mammal was a or mammals were a uh, one species of bat and one species of seal, which I guess, you know, it flops up on the land once in a while. I guess that counts as a land mammal to some extent um, so, because all these things couldn't get there, right? So then you get this totally whacked out system. And the problem is that if you, if you kind of change that filter and allow things to reach that island then that were never there in the past, uh, what we would term invasive species, uh, they are 
the island is much more sensitive to those than a continental system. Would Mm -hmm. that almost be like an immunocompromised kid or like someone who's like never been outside, never been exposed to dirt. And then like someone who lives like an ultra hygienic life is much more susceptible to infection. Would that be an analogy that makes some amount of sense? Yeah, I think I think if you like get down to the specifics of immune systems, maybe less so. But but yeah, like the idea of <laughs> we're not doctors here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But they haven't they, they haven't right. So like the wildlife of Hawaii has not been exposed to ants until people introduced a bunch of ants, and then that caused a ton of problems, right? Because uh, ants are a major thing and they occupy a big niche that way. So you could compare it to like people who haven't been exposed to smallpox suddenly getting smallpox, right? And then it kills a ton of people. It's it's one of those things where it's it's not in your your ecological recent ecological history, and so you're kind of as an ecosystem not prepared for it. Um, probably not explain that particularly well, but but the idea being that uh, what makes Hawaii so weird and so unique and so interesting is also the same thing that makes it so endangered, because everything that developed in, in the Hawaiian Islands and there's so much endemism and so much stuff that's found nowhere else, and it's all super super weird. Like they have carnivorous caterpillars. Like come on. Uh, that's all coming from that, 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 that's the, that the reason it's so weird is the same reason why it can't work with wildlife from elsewhere. And it's so much easier to invade. You could think of it like trying to like fit, fit people onto an elevator. And if you go into like the continental tropics, that elevator is crowded with species. But in some places like Hawaii is like maybe five people on the elevator doing a whole bunch of different things. And you could easily shove much more people in there and they can, you know, really take over. <laughs> so obviously we're struggling for good analogies here, but um, yeah, that's, that's Friday at 8 PM. You're okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but I think that's, that's my quickest way of saying it. And I would definitely encourage people to watch documentaries, check out some books on Hawaiian natural history, because it is zany. And this does apply to all sorts of other islands, but I don't think it's ever been as bad as it has been on, on, I shouldn't say bad, as interesting as it has been in Hawaii, because it's so, so isolated. Excellent. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And is there anything in particular, because I know Hanalei and um, where Kyoko's worked and then where you've done your PhD work as well are both kind of centered around wetlands. Is there anything mm-hmm. unique with Hawaii's wetlands as well that we need to be thinking about? That's a that's an awesome question, considering, you know, we're already starting with a weird ecological system here being weighed out on these islands and i think i think you're you're tremendously uh astute to be to be asking specifically about the wetlands wetlands themselves are of course very different ecosystems you know uh compared to forests and grasslands and things like that they are so intensely um tied to hydrology the way that water arrives on the landscape and how it moves through that it it can cause them to be very very different um between regions uh so so in hawaii again we're on an island in the middle of the ocean water does weird stuff there uh and that affects of course how these how these wetlands are made formed and maintained it actually kind of depends on the age of the island so we we know that these islands are all volcanic that they are that they are forming from uh, magma coming up through these the the continental plates or the, the earth's crust basically and as as that plate is moving right more islands are kind of being sort of pooped up out of it and the older the islands are the more the school the shorter and kind of more they settle on themselves the volcanic material but that causes this very abrupt increase in elevation going straight up from 
you know, zero elevation, the, the, the level of the ocean, which tends to intercept moisture, like bodies of moisture in the air, uh, clouds might be an easy way to describe that, that are, that are moving along the ocean. Those get pushed up by, by running into that land. And as they get pushed up, they cool down, they condense, and of course you get rainfall. So we call that orographic rainfall made by um, the earth or the rock. And so these, these, the taller Hawaiian islands, which are the younger ones, um, uh, can pull down a lot more of this, of this water. In general, though, you're getting pretty much from all the main islands, which are relatively young and big, they're still above the water, um, they're pulling down a lot of this rainfall. So there's, there's a lot of rainfall happening in the mountains. And again, because they're volcanic, you're getting these uh, sort of volcanic dikes um, certain densities of rock that actually almost act like pipelines, essentially, that allow the water to drain very deep down into the, into the island. Uh, it's more permeable that way than a lot of continental landforms. And that causes this huge upwelling, then, of water coming basically up from under the ground along the coastline, in the, what they call the coastal plain. And some of these uh, middle-aged islands like Oahu and Kauai, where a lot of these wetlands are and a lot of these wetland-dependent uh, organisms are, you have really, really steep mountains because of the erosion and a really, really flat, lush coastal plain where everybody likes to hang out and have their you know, surfer shacks or whatever and where Honolulu and stuff is now. And on those coastal plains, because of this upwelling of water, you get these tremendous uh, wetlands that, that formed. A lot of them have been lost on, on Oahu especially. Uh, Waikiki Beach, actually, which is you know this gigantic, very famous tourist beach. None of that sand is original. That used to be a massive freshwater wetland fed by a spring. Uh, my understanding is that Waikiki, Vai means fresh water in Hawaiian, and, and Waikiki was referring to water that was like bouncing around or, or coming up in a spring. And so that that whole giant wetland complex was was spring fed. So. Uh, it's a very particular type of wetland that tends to develop in Hawaii. And there are other types of wetlands, like on, on Kauai up in the mountains, there are areas that, even though they're on a slope, it literally never stops raining. Uh, the wettest place on earth kind of thing. And those areas will have their own sorts of wetlands. But the ones that we're concerned about with the Hawaiian water birds and, and, and where uh, the birds from Conservation Dogs Hawaii are working, uh, those are these, these low elevation, flat wetlands, um, just beautiful, clean, fresh water coming up from the ground. Uh, and unfortunately, they're, they're very vulnerable, just like any other ecosystem in Hawaii, they're very vulnerable to, to invasive species. And wetland ecosystems, because there's a lot of water and a lot of sun, are really great for aggressively invasive plants. So there are a number of uh, invasive emergent plant species that can just take over these wetlands so fast. So I, I was doing a lot of work with the Fish and Wildlife Service and Hawaii uh, DOFA, the Department of Fisheries and Wildlife or something like that, um, when I was over there. And the, the amount of maintenance they had to do to maintain habitats for these birds was absolutely tremendous. If, if they stopped mowing or burning or what have you every couple weeks to months, these these wetlands would be overgrown in no time, and all the nesting habitat for these birds was gone. So uh, it, it's really 
it's not the way we think of invasive species on, on the mainlands, for example. Um, these things are so aggressive and can push through so quickly that management has to be really continuous. Uh, and as we talked about, the, the, you know, the, the usual suspects of invasive mammalian predators uh, are also a, a big threat here as they are to uh, the forest ecosystems. But yeah, in my mind, those are sort of the things that make these wetlands different and sort of the, the main threats that they're faced with. Of course, the, the other thing that, you, that we just can't deny, which is less a threat now, but is part of the reason we're in this situation where these, where these remaining wetlands are in such bad shape, is we just lost a lot of it. That was, that was some of the first work I ever did in my PhD, uh, looking at the habitat that these water birds especially are found in. On the island of Oahu, we're dealing with, in terms of low, ele low elevation wetland loss, probably 80% or more of the coastal wetlands were lost uh, to development because they were nice places to build, right? You have a view of the ocean, you have nice flat soil, uh, good for agriculture, whatever. Um, those areas very quickly came under threat of development. So the remaining ones are in tiny little pockets that we managed to protect. And they're, they're so, so precious, but by dint of being so low in their coverage, right, they, they kind of... Uh, that, that fragments the populations of these of the organisms that rely on them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And that, thank you for giving a lot of that context. So um, coming back to you, Kyoko, can we talk a little bit about some of the interesting places you've worked? I think when most people think of Hawaii, myself included, having never been there, I think of beaches. Palm trees. I'm aware of the Nepali coast. Yeah. Um, that's a place I know I want to go. So I'm aware that there are mountains, volcanoes, and forest. Um, but I know, like, for example, you just, um, a, a photo from Conservation Dogs Hawaii just won a photo contest, and it was not something that I was expecting to see from Hawaii. So why don't you talk a little bit about some of the places you've worked um, and some of the diversity that you've seen there? And maybe if you want to also speak to anything interesting that comes up from the dog side of things with those different ecosystems. Sure. Um, so that photo that you just mentioned from the photo contest, that was from um, like nine to 9,500 elevation on Mauna Kea, a volcanic island or mm -hmm. uh, mountain on the big island. And uh, yeah, so we were above the clouds. And I think that's kind of what made for um, like an interesting image. Um, just walking it's above the clouds. Yeah. yeah. And I think that people don't think so much. I mean, they've seen pictures of flowing lava, but they don't think of the hard hardened lava that, you know, you can walk on. Um, and that's mm -hmm. a big part of um, the landscape here, especially the newer islands. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I'd been up there before, but this was the first time I went up there with detection dogs, and it was very, very interesting and beautiful and amazing. Um, the dogs had to wear, you know, protective booties, of course, because it's pretty rough up there. Um yeah. yeah, so Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa, all the mountains here are pretty spectacular. Um, and that's definitely not the image that most people have of Hawaii. Um, Johnston Atoll, where I went last year um, with the dogs to do the invasive ant detection, um, that was an interesting mm -hmm. place. I mean, it's a little bit more what people might imagine with the you know, tropical turquoise water and, you know, some palm trees and stuff like that, but it was a former uh, military base um, and they used to do chemical weapons testing and, um, you know, storage and stuff like that. So there's still a little bit of that left there. And um, it's basically like a flat island with an air uh, plane runway. And now it's kind of a little bit overgrown with um, just non-native 
plants and stuff like that. But yeah, it's not really the terrain that you'd imagine here um, just because it used to be a military base. So that was pretty interesting. Um, and then of course, Hanalei, we you just talked about it's, yeah, it's, it's an amazing wetland environment. And again, not, not a place that people are, the public is allowed to visit. So mm-hmm. they, they did make an, a new overlook where people can look at it, but um, it's a little bit different from the typical image of Hawaii as well. I'm curious about working the dogs in those wetlands, having not been there, like how, how wet is it? How wet are the dogs? Are they having to swim at points? Are they waiting? Or are you able to kind of navigate on some, some bits of solid land? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, most of it is on the grass and mud. So we're mm-hmm. circumnavigating the taro fields. And the reason that it's focused more on the taro is that the botulism tends to not happen in the wetland units as much um, as oh, the taro. And they think that it's, you know, has to do with water quality level, maybe fertilizer. It's, it's being investigated and worked on as well. Um, but uh-huh. so, yeah, most of it is walking on mud and dirt. Um, and then if the dogs detect something in the taro, then they would be sent into the taro, but it's wet taro, Mm -hmm. meaning, um, it's in water and mud. So, you know, last time I was there training, the dogs were maybe up to their shoulders (laughs) or between their shoulders and their, um, elbows Elbows. in mud. So it's not necessarily an easy area, easy place to walk. That sounds exhausting for the dogs. Um, I mean, they they only need to do a short distance (laughs) from the dike to the carcass, but, um, you kind of need a combination of dog that has the drive to walk through that kind of mud, but is also not a total like dive bomber who's going to, you know, destroy the plants and stuff like that. So yeah, Yeah. it's a fine balance for sure. Do you have, for, for those of us who may not know what tarot is, (laughs) um, I have no idea. No, 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 that's okay. Um, so you can explain it. And then as well, do you have any photos that, um, you're allowed to share that maybe we could drop into the show notes? Sure. Yeah, I'll send you that later. Um, but taro Great. is a it's a root plant, um, kind of like a potato, except um, okay. it has um, like a long stalk that grows above the water um, and big leaves above it. So the Hawaiians use the leaves for all kinds of um, cooking as well, like luau food and stuff like that, as well as the root. Um, there are some people who grow this plant dry, but um, the water protects it from um, predators so that's helpful for the farmers here cool yeah i've never i've never had it i i have no conceptualization of what what this is so i'm gonna have to do some googling later (laughs) (laughs) happily so my my next question for you kyoko is, is one that i thought of immediately when i very excitedly got involved in this interview which was when I think of Hawaii and my time there, it is a place that is, yes, very very weird in very good ways. That leads to such special and different experiences in the outdoors. As a naturalist, I, I find that it's such an overwhelmingly different and fascinating place. When you're doing conservation work, especially in Hawaii, there, there are lots of areas that are... that people overlook when they're visiting the islands. I think that people go to the beaches, they go to Honolulu, 
what have you, and they're and they're gone. But there's so much more to those islands, and there are so many special, amazing places and special, amazing organisms to see. What kind of things have you, you know, in your position, especially working professionally in conservation, what have been some of your favorite and most special places and plants and animals that you have come across in your work? Wow, um, there's, there's just so much that it's hard to just say one thing. Um, I guess the great thing about doing conservation dog work is it's not limited to a specific species. You get to work on different things, which I love. Um, so one thing that comes to mind that I haven't mentioned is um, are the endangered snails that are up in the mountains here. Yeah, and we actually tried to do um, a project um, detecting the invasive cannibal snails that attack these native snails but we just found that oh. the dogs are not the best um, use for this unfortunately because these in, uh, predator snails were very very hard to detect especially under leaf litter and in the environments that these snails live um, but yeah so as part of um, exploring this project we got to go up to the mountains and visit the exclosures that these uh, snail extinction extinction prevention program and other um, snail people have built um, to keep the predators out, which includes the invasive snails as well as rodents and Jackson's chameleons, reptiles. So, um, yeah, I got to see the tiny little beautiful snails. They have stripes. A lot of them have these stripes on their uh, shells, and that was pretty special just because it's something so unusual and, you know, very different from what you think of Hawaii, like turtles and dolphins and, you know, seabirds <laughs> and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think. Did you share some photos of those guys and all their their cool stripes on your Instagram at some point? I or probably am I did. Someone yeah. else, yeah, probably did. Yeah, cool. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love um, I love that one of the things that comes to mind with the some of the coolest wildlife is a snail. I think that just goes to show how uh, how nerdy we all are. I love that. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> yeah. What are you trying to say about snails, though? Hold on a second. Hold trying... up, hold up, hold up. <laughs> I am not trying to throw shade at the snails. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would never. Um, <laughs> So um, I think we've already touched on this a little bit, um, but Charles, was there anything more you wanted to say about why invasive species are so par so particularly harmful in Hawaii? You know, we know they're problematic everywhere. Um, I know we've touched on that a little bit, but if you wanted to expand on that anymore. I guess one other thing to not, to not paint too bleak a picture about the invasion ecology situation in Hawaii, there's one... There's one potential advantage to being on an island, which I think is represented really well by folks in New Zealand, um, where there's just a very strong, I think, conservation ethic and a lot of uh, funding and public support for conservation measures. Being on an island at least gives you the advantage that there's a limited amount of this kind of um, battlefield mm -hmm. against an invasive taxon of some kind, invasive species or population, what have you. So because there isn't like an unlimited, you know, a virtually unlimited area for these invasive species to, to spread to, like there would be on a continent, you can potentially kind of like square off areas and like take territory back. You know, if you can protect certain areas really well uh, and eradicate those organisms 
or manage them really effectively within an area, you could have you, you could have kind of safe zones. And in, in New Zealand, they've managed to clear you know entire small islands this way. So I think you know some of the some of the the danger that's that's posed ecologically by the small size of things can actually be to our advantage here in terms of managing them. So there's there's sort of a glimmer of hope, you know, and there are a lot of new technologies with regards to excluding invasive species from bird nesting colonies and things like that that are yes, very expensive but also being shown to be increasingly effective. So there are ways to to deal with this and I think we are getting a better a better handle on it. But generally, it's just worth remembering that when you're dealing with islands, most of the time you're dealing with invasive species, right? Relevant to those an analogies we were messing with earlier, uh, immunocompromised individuals or elevators or, or whatnot, island systems are going to be more sensitive to invasion unless they're, well, no, pretty much across the board. Um, and so an invasive species are their own kind of very unique conservation issue. But they happen to be one that, that also, you know, thematically relevant here, they also happen to be one that, that conservation detection dogs can make huge contributions to because detecting invasive species is really important. And I'm sure we'll talk more about that in the, in the future. Um, but yeah, I think that, that's, I, I, I don't want to end all of that on, on such a, a super sour note and, and want to acknowledge that there are some strategic advantages to the situation that Hawaii's in and there are success stories that we can learn from and hopefully expand upon. Yeah. And Kyoko, you've worked with, um, so we've mentioned the devil weed, which I'm assuming based on the name, it's not soft and nice smelling, but I could be wrong. Um, and then we also, we've mentioned the coconut rhinoceros beetle as well. So you've worked on a couple different invasive projects. What are some of the particular considerations you as a dog handler and trainer are thinking about with working with invasive species? And what do you find rewarding about that work? Um, so did the coconut rhinoceros beetle is not a project that we are working on. Um, oh, okay. I just uh, promoted a position that they had open and fortunately one of our um, devil weed handlers actually got the job. So now she's doing the devil weed as well as the coconut rhinoceros beetle, which oh, cool. is really cool. Yeah. But um, so your question was um, what are the considerations in dealing with invasive species? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that, it depends on the species, depends on the island and stuff. Like, for example, um, devil weed is pretty established on Oahu, and there's not a big chance of complete eradication here. So it's more mm -hmm. in the containment um, phase. And so, of course, we still are very careful to decontaminate our gear and not go out there during, like, the full-on seeding season um, because we could exacerbate the spread. Um, but, yeah, as far as... Um, training samples for example it's not regulated on oahu so we're able to you know pick them mm. and bring them home for training and just when it's flowering season we'll cut off the flowers or something but on the big island where it was recently um, discovered it's very it's still very new and they want still have a chance of eradicating it so you know i don't think that um you know just the random person's able to you know, pull the weed and take it home for training or something like that. Yeah. So yeah, it does depend on, on where you are. Yeah. That makes and sense. When I was with, in yeah. Montana, mm -hmm. oh, sorry. When I was no, in Montana, ahead. I know, and, and this was back at working dogs for conservation, but mm -hmm. the permitting process to get zebra mussels was crazy. Um, yeah. but then when, if I went home to Wisconsin where I grew up, 
I could walk off the ed- edge of my grandparents' dock on a lake and just pull a hunk of zebra mussels out of the water and use them to work with barley. Mm. So um, I actually did some some stuff where I just, if I was going home, I would just train barley with zebra mussels that I could pull out of really established areas in Wisconsin and then just not bring them home to Montana where they're not established yet. And I know similarly, one of the things we were thinking about um, back at Working Dogs for Conservation, working with Dyer's Woad, um, which was one of the plants we worked with, was we were walking, this is the only project I've ever done as a conservation dog handler, where we were walking um, five meter transects mm, um, wow. and just really trying to find every single plant. So is that something yeah. that you do as well? or <laughs> Yeah, no, so with um, Oahu devil weed, we do not do that because... Like I said, it's so established that there's really no chance of finding every single one. I mean, if it were at the point where, you know, there's only a few left in, in, on the island, then we would do more um, pattern searches and stuff like that. Uh, but uh, mm-hmm. right now on our island, that's not really practical. Um, we did sure. um, get contacted by the Big Island Invasive Species Committee, though, to possibly do some work with the dogs on their island. And, you know, over there, we might do um, something more like that, like with, you know, a more specific um, search strategy to make sure that we don't miss anything. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know um, Charles has to go soon. So we had two little questions left. One that I think we've already answered, but Kyoko, I was going to give you a chance to bring up anything else that we haven't brought up yet. Um, As far as specifically with the Hanalei National Wildlife Refuge, what are some of like, why are the dogs so important for the research there? Um, if you haven't mentioned it, if there's anything you wanted to bring up that you haven't yet there. Sure. Um, so it's no longer um, a research project. It's kind of an operational program. Um, but the research project was important a few years back in order to, you know, kind of establish the efficacy of the dogs in that particular environment for that application. Um, I think mm-hmm. because you know, as you know, in the conservation world, there's so many different applications. Every location is unique and the needs are unique. So you can't just say, oh, the dogs do, do great at the wind farm finding, you know, bird carcasses. So that means we can, they're, they're going to be good everywhere for all applications, mm-hmm. you know. So I th- it was important for us to do the research study um, to show that and to compare, you know, human visual surveyors versus dog teams versus ATV and stuff like that, and what's good about each method. Um, And so what the study found was that, you know, the visual surveys complemented the canine-assisted surveys, so they didn't necessarily find the same targets, and I think that's a really cool thing, um, to, to be able to say that these two methods together can help find more, instead of, oh, the dogs are, you know, the magic bullet or something like that. Yeah, or dogs don't yeah. work at all. <laughs> yeah, so, <laughs> so yeah, as far as, you know, just the program now, um, you know, it's, it's only been several months since the program um, started. But, you know, again, we're finding the same type of thing as we did in the study where the dogs are finding, you know, different targets than the humans are. And so, so far, the botulism level has been low. And, you know, we don't know, we don't have enough data at this point, but we'd like to, we hope that, you know, the dogs are contributing to keeping the botulism low. Yeah, that's great. Um, well, Charles, I know you need to go. So thank you so much for being here. Um, 
We'll talk again soon. And everyone who's listening, hang on. We've got one more really cool question with Kyoko about her sniffer rap program. So don't leave yet. <laughs> yeah. It's so nice to meet you, Charles. Kyoko, so nice to meet you. Thanks so much for coming and chatting with us. And of course, Kayla, thanks once again for for having me on the show. And a big thank you to our listeners. A really exciting and, and nice to to engage with a, with a new audience here. And um, yeah, really, really grateful to be a part of this. So thanks, everybody. And see you next time. Thanks, Charles. So Kyoko, as um, as we said right before we let Charles go, um, you have a really cool program that you're just starting on with some sniffer rats. Um, why rats? What's the project? And um, where are you at with it? Where are the what are the goals? You know, I know that's like 17 questions. but just <laughs> yeah. Tell me I'll about the rat program. Sure. So what made me think of this um, idea was, you know, when I worked at Hanalei, um, you know, the dogs ideally will go into the tarot and find the targets, but there are some, you know, units, tarot units where they're just way too big for the dog to effectively, you know, sniff anything, sniff through the entire unit. Um, so made me think, oh, I wonder, you know, if we could send a rat in there on a boat and then they could you know, press a button and let you know when they smell a target, like, running mm-hmm. them crosswind in transects or something like that. Uh-huh. I thought that would be so cool. And not just for that particular use, but, you know, I thought of putting rats on drones and, you know, monster, oh mini monster trucks and I don't know, just different <laughs> vehicles oh to gosh. access um, terrain that is difficult for the dogs or dangerous perhaps. Um, mm-hmm. And I know that some people put dogs on kayaks and boats and stuff like that, but, you know, there are certain locations where you can't do that. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how I came up with the idea. Yeah. And, you know, of course, everybody knows about the landmine detecting rats. So it's kind of well known that dogs have good olfactory system and they are able to do it if they're trained right and the right ones are picked. So um, that was my idea. But at the same time, you know, we were trying to look into the rodent mongoose, like an invasive mammal detection program. So I decided to get some rats of my own because it was hard to find you know, pet rat owners who are willing to let us use their pets as training aids for the dogs. You know, it's this idea of, Mm. you know, dogs hunting invasive rodents is a little bit scary, (laughs) you know, if you have your own pet rat, right? So, um, so I got my own and like, I had no idea that I would totally fall in love with them and become, you know, a crazy rat lady. (laughs) It's even more (laughs) so than dogs. Yeah, Yeah, they are. They're um, so intelligent. And anything I've trained them on so far, I mean, they pick it up immediately, like a new target odor or targeting or, you know, whatever Mm -hmm. it is. So um, so I think, yeah, the training part is going to be actually the easier part of this project. And it's been more um, learning about, you know, rat behavior, um, what are the best reinforcers to use? Like, how do you pick the best working rat who wants to do this kind of work? I was going to say, yeah, do you have high drive rats? Yeah, Uh, they are. (laughs) And there's definitely, I've actually found the lower drive, or I would say less food motivated ones tend to, at least in my experience, have been a little more affectionate. Um, They want to cuddle and they also found that they don't like vegetables for some reason. The ones that don't like vegetables are also not that food motivated, it seems. So, yeah, I, I learned some yeah curious things. And, of course, you know, um, that may not be true um, for all rats, but that's what I've experienced. So it's been interesting yeah. testing food reinforcers um, and also just learning about their behaviors in general. Like, what are some of the alert behaviors that might be um, conducive to rats, like 
you know, mm-hmm. the same with chickens, for example, if you're training them, they are likely to, they like to peck things. So it's an easy thing to train them to do on cue. Mm-hmm. So that type of thing. Um, yeah. And then what's probably going to be more challenging is um, also uh, the actual application, because I did speak with the people at the refuge and you know, they liked the idea, but they were like, oh, well, you know, it's going to take about three years to get a permit to put a remote controlled boat in the refuge. Wow. <laughs> so it's like, oh, wow, I hadn't even thought of that. Okay, never yeah, mind. Um, that's yeah. going to be generation like two or three of rats at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I think at this point, I'm not, um, my goal is not to do this at Hanalei, but to just test the method in, yeah. you know, yeah, just controlled environments to see uh, what works best with equipment, like the boat and the doorbell or whatever they push to alert and the camera that you yeah. uh, put on the boat and stuff like that. Wow. That just yeah. sounds like such a cool project. I know one of the, uh, I've always had this dream. So I got my start as a bird trainer. Um, before I ever trained dogs, I trained birds. Um, and I've always had this this wacky dream in my head of trying to figure out how to convince um, some vultures to work for me. Um, oh yeah, I think it would only really work well for things like cada- like to 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 augment like a, a missing person search or like a cadaver dog sort of search, because I imagine it needs to be such a big odor cone for a high flying bird to find mm. it. But um, I know there was some some guy in Germany in like the 50s or 60s or 70s, I can't remember, who tried it and didn't have much success, but um, he might not have. I, I would hope that maybe with a bit of bit more knowledge of ethology and ABA, you might be able to get a little bit further. Yeah, and I don't know if you've heard um, some of those podcasts about um, falconry, but mm-hmm. um, there are people who use um, raptors in conjunction with their um, hunting dogs. So yeah. like the yeah the birds will detect something visually and then the dog will help flush it or flush I don't it. know something like that. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's one of those things that um, yeah I don't know anywhere near enough about to start on as a project, but I'm hoping one day I'll have the opportunity to to have my own uh, experiments with some multi species work. That um, would be great, and I'd be happy to volunteer and help you. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. We should have yeah the 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 conservation detection species network. (laughs) Yeah. Um, What are your rats' names, and how many do you have? Right now, I have three. Um, The oldest Uh one is Tony. Um, I named him Two Tone Tony because he has the gray cap and then the white body. Uh Tony, and um, the younger one that is also Two Tone is Junior because he looks like a younger version of Tony. And then the third one is mm-hmm. nahe nahe. It's a Hawaiian word that means gentle. He was the most gentle uh-huh. um, baby rat. And of course, he actually turned out to be the most um, food motivated, I think, um, trainable rat. Oh, interesting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, I look forward to your your papers on rat temperament testing <laughs> and you know helping screen for rats. Uh, maybe by the time I'm ready to start exploring multi-species detection work, I'll be able to learn a bunch from you. Um, well, Kyoko, is there anything more that you wanted to talk about? I just realized we asked about your rats. We haven't asked about your dogs, so we can talk about them. And if there's anything else you wanted to bring up before we wrap up? Um, no. I Yeah, I think that was that was great. Really appreciate you having me on the podcast. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed this and I'm looking forward to doing a part two and three and who knows what else going forward. I look forward to that. Yeah. 
All right. Well, Kyoko, um, where can people find you well, online if um, if they haven't figured out how to find you yet? And we'll, of course, include all of that in the show notes as well as I made a note to find that that study that you mentioned from Hanalei and all the photos of the Terra and all of that. Sure. Our website is www.conservationdogshawaii.org. Uh, our Instagram and Facebook are both Conservation Dogs Hawaii. Um, mm-hmm. We do have a Twitter, but we always forget to post on there. <laughs> so I think Instagram <laughs> and Facebook are the best um, for now. Okay, great. Well, yeah, and again, we'll have all of that in the show notes along with everything else that you always find in the show notes for this show. Um, thank you again, Kyoko, and um, we'll talk again soon. Thanks, Caleb. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling inspired to get outside and be a canine conservationist in whatever way suits your passions and your skill set. This week's call to action is to review canine conservationists yet again on Apple Podcasts. Um, It's been a long time since we've gotten a new interview. It looks like as of recording in December, our most recent review was in September. So if you haven't yet, please do take a moment to go on over and review us over on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the podcast and it makes my day. Um, You can find show notes, donate to Canine Conservationists, hire us, or join our Patreon over at canineconservationists.org. Until next time. Are you on Patreon yet? If you love this podcast and want to support it in the long term, Patreon is the way to go. I spend hours per episode researching guests, writing out questions, recording interviews, posting on Patreon to engage with our patrons about all of those, cleaning up the audio, and putting together all of the promotional materials. Even with the help of volunteers, this is an enormous task that takes up a ton of my time, and right now I'm not paid for it. For just $3 a month, you can support this show while also gaining access to our exclusive Detection Dog Training video help calls, which happen once a month, our learning help calls, which are currently quarterly, but I'm hoping to move to monthly, and a lot more. You can join the fun over at patreon.com slash canineconservationists or using the link in our show notes. You also may want to share this with anyone else you know who is interested in getting involved in the field of conservation detection dogs, because this is hands down the lowest cost way to get as much mentoring and assistance and joining the community of other professional and aspiring conservation detection dog handlers. And um, you're going to really enjoy it. See you there.